two minutes went by really fast. I uh, wasn't ready for it. I turned around, and there we were. So, great. All right, let's look at this. Oh, I think we need to pray. Sound like a good idea? I do, too. I think it does, too. Okay. All right, Lord. So, here we are. And God, we just come for you. We want to listen to you and hear from you. Uh, to be filled with your spirit, Lord, and to wake up to, to what your word says. Uh, Lord, e- e- what you say, it's not complicated, Lord. It's actually really simple, but it's, but it's hard to understand sometimes. Or it's like, like, you know, like you say, Paul says, teaches things that are hard to understand. Even in, in your word, you acknowledge that. Sometimes the things that Paul says are hard for us to grasp, hard for us to really like lean into. But Lord, but Lord not too hard. Uh, so, Lord, I just pray for in equipping and ability, Lord, that your spirit would teach us uh, what you're calling us to, Lord, as we pursue you and as we uh, live this life. Um, Lord, give us the humility to just listen to you. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, cool. Well, so if you missed last week, this is kind of like a part two because we're still in chapter uh, 13 and there's like this... Uh, with this long speech, and we only had this, this chance to get through this long speech that Paul gave uh, last week, you know, had to wrap up the message, but there's this kind of concluding part, so this is really kind of connected to the previous message, so if you didn't listen to the previous message, I'm going to try to make it make sense to you, but it'll make a lot more sense if you go back and listen, so I want to encourage you to do that, um, you know, and if you're here and you haven't, sorry, you're stuck, you can't get up, it's awkward, um, now you can. Um, if you missed last week, right, so, so, so Paul made this speech to a synagogue in a place called Pisidian Antioch, and what Paul's been doing is he's been traveling around with Barnabas and a few other people, um, talking, uh, going into the Roman world, like outside of the, the beaten path where the church had been. The beaten path where the church had been so far was really in, in major Jewish population centers um, and into synagogues, but Jews were all over the world at the time, right? So there were Jews everywhere because... Because the Roman Empire was integrated, and it was integrated by trade, and so there was a lot of trading going along, a lot of, a lot of things um, happening in, in, in integration, even, even of Jews as a distinct group, in, into the world. And so w- whenever Paul would go a place, he, he'd, he'd go to the synagogue um, and, and talk to the, to the Jews there. And watch what Paul did, what we read about last, um, last week in, in Romans 13, uh, <laughs> in uh, Acts 13. So he, he, he has gathered the Jews there, and he basically speaks to them a message that's really uniquely suited for their culture. He talks to them about their history as Jews, right? Because they have a, a shared ethnicity and a shared story. Um, and he talks to them about their history, and he essentially explains to them that their story is, is basically works out along these lines, that they were pretty much unfaithful at every turn. You know, every opportunity that they could have, eventually they, they took it to be unfaithful, to, to not listen to God, not, not worship God, not to follow after God or, or respond. So, so their history is them constantly doing that. But it's also a history of God's action. And what God does in, in the face of their constant unfaithfulness is he's persistently faithful. Every time they, they take an opportunity to not listen to them, God, God makes a way and to restore them. Every time uh, they, they go out and, and, and take these steps, and, and he highlights some of the different things that they did, and he doesn't paint them in a very flattering light, and he, then he, he uses that unflattering light to, to point to the consistent and persistent faithfulness of God. 
He's telling, this is, this is your true story. You think you have this story where you're like on this upward mobility, you're becoming more holy, you're becoming more righteous. Actually, your true story is this. You, you, you keep trying and you keep failing, but God's still gracious. That's your, your true story. He says that, that's so much true, so much true that when God uh, like has finally sent his Messiah, the one he said was going to come and save, he, he sent the one to, who was going to come and rescue and establish them as a people and lead them into righteousness. What they do, instead of you know, being faithful and listening, they kill him, which is the opposite of being faithful and listening, about as, about as divergent of, of faithfulness as you could get. And what God does is he uses that, that point of, you know, maximum rebellion, maximum unbelief, maximum pride, and he turns it into a singular and earth-changing um, opportunity to give them what they do not deserve. Yet again, his mercy and his faithfulness, his forgiveness. God sends the one to save, the one to establish, the one to restore. You kill him. And precisely in doing that, God is going to be merciful and faithful. He's going to do what he has always done. He's going to forgive. And he's going to be kind. And what we talked about last week is really, is really just kind of how this gospel works. We just talked through the gospel. Um, and how this gospel works is that instead of making my life about working my way into God's favor, we find that when we're unfaithful, and, and because we are just fundamentally unfaithful, we're alienated from God, God like reconciles with us. I've got a, we looked at a couple little slides to illustrate this, right? And, and basically what happens is, according to the Bible, like the, like the way the world works is that there's in-groups and out-groups in the world, right? There's in-groups, people who are, who are the, on the right side of history, you know, on the right side of morality. They're, they're right. And what the Bible says is that uh, nobody is in the in-group. What, what Paul is explaining to them is they're not in the in-group. They think they're the faithful people. They think they're the people who are super blessed, and they're, they're going to, like, be the ones who go out and save the world for Jesus, right? <laughs> save the world for the Messiah. And but what Paul is says, no, you, like, you guys have failed at every point. And the point that Paul makes as he goes around talking not only to the Jews, but, but to Gentiles in general, is that we all are constantly failing at every point. We think sometimes we're holy and righteous and we're on the in-group, we're satisfying God. But actually the true story is that we are totally on the outs with God. We're sinners. Do I need to do anything? Okay. <laughs> I'm popping. We're sinners. We're on the outs with God. We are the persistently unfaithful people. We're on the out-group. But what does God do? He doesn't just say, oh, yeah, it sucks to be you. I shouldn't say sucks. I don't know, it's unbecoming, whatever that means. <laughs> what he does is this instead. What he does is he encircles the outgroup. He encircles people like us, unfaithful people, people like Israel. He encircles them with his grace. He offers them forgiveness so that they can leave that place of being on the outs from God, alienated from God by faith, by trust, by accepting this forgiveness. He doesn't say, you get better, you change, you change yourself, and then you can like satisfy me. He says, I'm going to pour out mercy, grace, and forgiveness, and the only thing you have to do in order to be on the in-group, the only thing you have to do to be forgiven, to, to, to be right with me, is simply by faith trust that I've done the work. Know that I'm faithful. Trust in my faithfulness. 
And so, like, that's basically the heart of it. He's basically telling them that they must trust this forgiveness bought by Jesus according to grace. And so that's what we're going to pick up. So he's given that speech. He's talked to them about their history. He's, he's told them to trust and not to continue to rebel. Um, and then he goes on. And we're just going to read the whole passage that we're going to be in today. I'm just going to read it all at once. So he says this. So, so he does that. And then as they were leaving... The people urged them, that is Paul and Barnabas, to speak about these matters the following Sabbath. After the synagogue had been dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who were speaking with them, and urging them to continue in the grace of God. The following Sabbath, almost the whole town assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the, the, saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what Paul was saying, insulting him. Paul and Barnabas boldly replied, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. We are turning to the Gentiles, for this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they rejoiced and honored the word of the Lord, and all who had been appointed to eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region, but the Jews incited a prominent God-fearing woman, and the leading men of the city, uh, incited the prominent God-fearing uh, women, and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their district, but Paul and Barnabas shook the dust off their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. So Paul's message, he, he talks about this grace of God. He talks about the forgiveness available to them despite their unfaithfulness. And it is initially extremely well received. So much so uh, that as he's getting ready to head out, they're like, you have to come back again next week and talk to us further about, explain to us more about what you're saying. Because we're really intrigued by what you're saying. You're, you, they're really into this um, uh, message and evidently he he agrees to do that. Say okay, I'll come back. And then on his way out, um, we find that that not everyone is actually satisfied with that. Waiting a week to find out more, people are actually following out him out the door. They're saying, look, look, I know you just like gave like this speech, and maybe it was longer than what we have. I don't know, but a considerable amount of, of time has been spent explaining this, and they they just can't get enough. Um, Many who heard him speak, they follow them out the door. They, they want to know right then and there. They don't want to wait a week. They think, man, this, this is something, there's something true about what's been spoken here, and we want to find out more. Um, last week, we talked a little bit about uh, this model that I have up here of, of cultural apologetics. Um, and even though I talked about it, no one followed me out the door, so I guess it wasn't that compelling. <laughs> Actually, no, Michelle did. Michelle did. Michelle, we had a good talk about it. Um, uh, and so, you know, like, as we go through Acts over the next uh, couple weeks here, I'm going to be working in this model. So I'm just putting this up to kind of familiarize uh, you guys with it um, and, and talk about it. Um, because here's the thing. We live in, like, a super diverse world. I mean, Seattle over the last 20 years, is, is a much different place than it was, you know, previous, if you grew up here. And the east side is not any longer a, like, a culturally homogenous place where it's just a bunch of people who, who look like you and think like you have the same background as you. So it's not like that anymore. 
uh, your workplaces are no longer filled with people who grew up like you, believe the same things that you believe, have the same experiences, the same background, the same worldview. No longer can you assume that people have a basic understanding of, of who Jesus is, what God's like, of, of how the world works, as a value system. We don't, we don't have these shared things anymore, right? I think everybody feels that. And like, it's like when you get into a conversation with somebody who has a totally different background, it can be hard. Like, how do I, like, where's like a, even a touch point to start a conversation with, with these people about Jesus? Because they see the world so differently. Um, so it can be really intimidating to start talking to people about Jesus. How do you talk to someone if you don't have the same assumptions, same culture? But what this model, like, the reason I want to talk about this model is, is because it helps us to jump over that difficulty. It helps us to get past the, the immediate difficulties that we don't have a shared culture with somebody. And, and well, what do we share? And, and what, what he's arguing is that everybody shares these three things, a longing for truth, everybody shares a longing for goodness, and everybody shares a longing for beauty. Like these three things are, are kind of universal desires. So not everybody has the same values. Not everybody has the same value systems or way of thinking about morality. But everyone has these innate longings, God-given longings, things that, they, that, that are part of their, their creation. And so as we share with Jesus with people in a pluralistic world, we can start conversations around these longings. And we can sustain conversations. We can ask people, okay, well, like, what do you think truth is? And start, talk about what truth and how you define truth. And you'll go down some great rabbit holes there. Uh, it's interesting when, when people start to, to think about, well, how do they know what's really true? Talk about goodness. What makes for goodness? What satisfies your conscience? What does it mean to be a good person in the world? Have conversations about these things because the gospel is immediately relevant to that stuff. What, what, what's beautiful in life? What's life for? What is, what is the purpose of life? What makes life meaningful and significant? These are areas where we can have conversations, so I want us to be familiar uh, with, with this. And Paul is doing this. I mean, he's doing this with people who share a same culture, right? And so it's a little bit easier because they have a, have a shared understanding. But essentially what he's doing, like we talked about last week, he was talking about goodness. He's talking about how do we satisfy our conscience? How do we make ourselves right with God? That's what the gospel does primarily. It satisfies a moral and guilt problem. Like that's, that's the, the sacrifice of Jesus makes it so that we don't have to be ashamed of our sin and guilt any longer. It takes away, solves in a, in a significant way the problem of goodness and a guilty conscience. But it's, it's, it's also worth noting that Paul isn't only talking about that. He's also appealing to uh, reason. He's talking about what's true, ultimately. Um, I have this other little slide here, you know, and we, we have these little ways that we can take those longings and, and apply them to the gospel. And, and by the use of reason is one of those things we can reason with people. We're, we're told over and over again in the scriptures, like in the pastoral letters, we're told to reason with people. The gospel is reasonable. You have a reasonable service to the Lord, just to worship him, to follow him. It's reasonable if you know what is true about what Jesus has said in the world. There's, there's a lot of reason that should follow from it. And so Paul is really reasoning with them. He's letting them say, 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 trying to tell them, okay, you have to understand what the true story is. And the true story is you haven't been faithful. You think you've been faithful. You want to stand in that, but, but that has always let you down. The true story is you haven't been faithful. God is faithful. And he's making a way to establish and secure that faithfulness. He's trying to help them understand the truth. And that's what we do as we present the gospel. Uh, the guy who made this model, Paul Gould, he says, defines truth this way. And this is not uncontroversial. But I think at the same time, it is quite logical. He says, we find truth when our thoughts, beliefs, or statements correspond to reality. When we are rightly related to the world, to the way the world is. 
Now, I'm, I'm honestly, like, in a postmodern world, not everybody agrees that that's the definition of the truth, but it is the most common and historically uh, accepted definition of truth. It's that when our ideas about the world correspond to the way the world actually is. And what Paul is doing is he's making truth claims. The gospel is about claims about what is actually real and what's actually true. That's why Jesus has come as a light, right? He comes as a light to illuminate and reveal what is, right? The, 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 the way the gospel writers talk about us is that, is that before coming to Jesus, before understanding and believing and trusting him, we're like blind people. And blind people are, are perfectly good people, but they do not have the capacity to see what's around them. But Jesus comes as a light into the world, not to just be like a good, great person or show us what's right, but, but to show us what is actually true so that we can actually see what's uh, true around us. I was talking a little bit about this with uh, the teens on Wednesday. Um, and it, we had a volunteer. I'm not going to ask for a volunteer. Don't worry. But we had a volunteer, you know, just stand up and say, okay, we'll take 10 steps as quickly as you can. And Lucy Smith stood up and took 10 steps. It took her like two seconds. It was very quick, right? And then I told her to close her eyes and I spun her around and I said, take 10 steps as quick as you can. <laughs> it took a lot longer. Right, because when I can see what's around me, I can just go and navigate around what is. Like, I know this is here, and so I'm not going to do this, right? Ow, that did hurt. <laughs> just for you guys, things I do, right? Because when my eyes are open, when I know what's true, when I know how the world is and my thoughts and ideas about the shape of things, it actually corresponds to the way the world actually is, then I've start to understood what's true. And what Jesus does, what the gospel does, is it reveals what's true, how the world is actually ordered. And what we see Paul presenting is this radical idea that the world is organized around grace. What's ultimately true is not you can be faithful if you just try harder and do it. It's that God is going to do the faithfulness. And in doing the faithfulness, he's going to change your whole life and make you into a new person. See, these people, they were, they were following Paul out the door. They were asking him questions. And we don't have the questions that they were asking written down. We do have the answer he gives, which I think is interesting. But we can imagine what the questions are. They're probably the sorts of questions that a religious person, a person who's believed that their way of following God involves law-keeping. They're the sorts of questions that someone like that would ask. Things like, well, okay, I'm forgiven, awesome, but what do I have to do going forward? What do I have to do to keep on the, the right side of God, right? Because, okay, I'm forgiven, clean slate, awesome, but, but then what? What about from this point on? Right? Because, because up to this point, my, my way of orienting around God is just about following a bunch of laws. So, so, so now, if there's grace and forgiveness for my failings and my unfaithfulness, what, what's next? Things like, okay, well, when I mess up, which you're basically saying, I'm probably going to do, right? Because I'm, I'm not faithful. How do I make it up to God? Because in, in this old way, we made it up by, by sacrifices, right? By offerings, 
And so we don't have the questions, right? But I'm, I'm speculating about what they could be, but we do have his answers, and that's why I think that I think those would be the nature of the questions. The answer that he gives them to the questions that they're asking are this, just continue in the grace of God. What does continue mean? Don't stop doing it. Don't stop being there. Don't stop staying in that place. He says, he says what, 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 what's, what's very clear in the gospel of Jesus is that grace has enveloped unfaithful people and that by faith they come to, into this right relationship with God. They cross over from like alienated, unfaithful people to adopted, cared for, loved, embraced, in-group sorts of people. And the only thing that those sorts of people need to do in order to stay in is just continue in that same thing that was just God's grace, mercy, and forgiveness. And if you continue in that grace, that's enough. The word grace here, it's charis, and charis is not a theological word. Like, when we think of grace, we think theology. Oh, so it has to do with the atonement and, like, forgiveness of sins, right? But it's just a simple word. It just means gift. God has given us a gift. His mercy is forgiveness. Just continue on in that gift. Don't depart from that gift. All the questions of, like, how do I and what if I, Paul's answer is the same. Just continue in the gift. How do we worship God? How do we stay right with him? Stay right with him. What do we do when we mess up? We, we just continue in the gift. God has anticipated and paid for the price of all your failings and all your offense. He knows they're going to come. But he wants you to hang in there with him because he's developing a relationship with you. He's proving his faithfulness over and over again. That doesn't mean you're going to stay the same and you don't need to worry about it. But it does mean that you are drawn in past your shame and past your failings. We cannot overstate how different Paul's representation of grace and a world organized around grace is from the way the Jews, and I think many of us as religious people, think about the world. The Jews thought of the world as a system that was meant to manage sin. Have you guys ever seen the show The Good Place? You ever watch that? I'm going to like totally spoil it for you. But it's like four years old, so you've had time. Um, like The Good Place, it, it's just a, it, it's, it's about this people, a bunch of people who go, uh, they die, and they end up in the bad place, which is the secular world of talking, of talking about hell and heaven and punishment. You know, they're exploring those ideas. Um, they don't know they're in the bad place. Uh, it, anyway, it's, uh, it's too complicated to explain. But basically, uh, over the course of several seasons, they kind of unpack this way of thinking about um, ethics that involves a point system. And the reason that they're all in the bad place is because they didn't have enough points to get to the good place. Right? I mean, that's pretty much how most people think about the world. You do more good than bad than great. Accounts balance out, you must be a good person. You must be on the right side of things. Most of us believe that's kind of what life's about. Instinctually, the natural person thinks that's what life is about. Life is about doing more good than bad, balancing out our influence, and helping more than we're hurting. But what Paul presents is a very different way of conceiving what is true, what is real, what life is actually like. According to Paul... We don't do life with God by focusing on keeping good accounts, keeping our balance in the positive. We do life 
we win at life, we succeed at life, we, we, we please God and have a relationship with God by continuing in grace, continuing in forgiveness, for continuing in his gift. Imagine you own a home, right? Now, you don't own the home. The bank owns the home. Your name's on it, but really it's theirs, right? No one have any experience with that? <laughs> Just me? Okay. <laughs> um, so you got this, you own, own this home, but you really have a large loan. Uh, and when it comes to home owning, what's the goal? Equity? Yeah. And ultimately, ending your relationship with the bank. You want to say, thank you very much. Give me my papers. They're not yours anymore. We no longer have anything to do with each other. <laughs> Thank you, bank. <laughs> Thank you, lending institution, right? That is the goal, is that you end your relationship with the bank. That's what most people's goal is in their ethical life. They end their relationship with God because they can say, I have more positive points than negative. I have more good things than bad things. So God, you got nothing on me. I own the title to my life because I'm not guilty, and I'm not ashamed. But Paul claims that the goal is actually, of grace, is to keep the relationship alive, to continue in grace, not to be just done with God. Got my forgiveness card, I'm going to heaven, going to live my life the way I want, within reason, because I don't want to lose more points, right? It's not that. The goal is to continue in grace, to depend on God all the more. How different is that than the way we normally think about what keeps us right? We just like think, okay, I don't offend God enough. I get enough points. I, I'm doing okay. Like he's just going to stay over there and I'm going to stay over here. He's not going to throw lightning bolts at me or send me to hell or the bad place or whatever. You know, I'm going to be okay, but I don't really have a relationship with him. But the gospel promises something else. It, it promises that we can continue in grace, that we can draw even greater equity down. And I don't want to, you know, give you any bad ideas that you should just, you know, reverse mortgage your home or anything like that, um, but you understand that the, the, the relationship that we're being called into, the grace we're calling us into, actually pulls us more deeply into life with God, puts us more in a sense of like in his debt because he has adopted us and he's literally taken on our debt on our behalf, not so that we can be free of it, so that we can no longer have a relationship, but because he just says, I love you, and like, 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 because I've adopted you, like, you're like my family now, and so I'm going to take on everything you have, and not, not only that, I'm not just going to set you free, we're going to share in life from this point on. Dallas Willard. Dallas Willard says, salvation, being saved, is, not, is then not a meager, merely human existence here, uh, but with a heavenly account flushed in the transferred merits of Christ. He says, that's not what salvation is. It is a human existence, to be sure, meager as it is, but one in which the currents of divine life have at least begun to pulsate. It is quoting Colossians 1.27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. It is, quoting Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will perfect it. It is, quoting Philippians 2.13, God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It is becoming, quoting 2 Peter 1.4, partakers of divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. It is, like Colossians 3.3 says, your life is hid with Christ in God. It's not, oh, separating accounts, everything's paid, 
they, God goes his way, I'm good with him, I go my way. It's actually like total merging of everything to the point where your whole life, your whole balance, everything about you is now hidden with Christ, in God, hidden in God with Christ. Like, this is an eternal life. This is the eternal life that Jesus is talking about. It's not just an unending life, it is a life totally merged and in union with God where there's restoration and reconciliation and renewal. And you're not just like getting parting ways with God, you are actually tapping into and, and, and partaking with God's very presence in your life. It is a life of interactivity with God himself. Because he's torn the veil and invited you in, and he loves you, and he cares about you, and he knows you're going to be unfaithful. He's taken the price for all that stuff, but he wants you to press ever more into this relationship with him. And it would be a mistake if we did what Paul basically says that the Jews did, right? What is it, what, what, what's the problem that they have? They hear about this, like they hear about this, they're excited at first, but then they get a little jealous and they start to insult Paul in front of all the people because all these people want to come hear him. And then he says, look, you've rejected it, the grace, and you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. And I think that's what I do a lot, you know? Like, I, I know these great promises of God, these, these things that Dallas Willard is pointing out to, that God is really drawing me into his life. He's, he's opening up the treasuries of, of everything that he has. He's opening up himself. He's filling me with his spirit. And yet so often I think, oh, God, no, I'm, I'm just not worthy of that stuff. I'm not worthy of that eternal life, that, that kind of quality of life where there's, where there's interactivity with you, where, where you're at work in me. Like, I'm not worthy of that stuff, God. Like, I just want to be, I just want to be okay but you don't fill me up with all your fullness. It's hard for people who are religious, like these people, they were religious, who, who think that their relationship is based on law. It's hard for them to get past that and understand, no, God's taken care, taken care of everything. He's paid the full price. God's adopted you in. Ephesians 1, 4 through 6 says this, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before Him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons, or equally as daughters, through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished upon us in the beloved one. I don't love these words. You like read this and you're just like, oh, that seems a little florid, Paul. Can't we just keep things a little more normal? Like, like there's like an emotion here. There's like a depth. There's, there's, there's a quality that I'm not super comfortable with. You lavished love upon me. I don't know. He's calling me to be holy, blameless in his love before him. He's adopted me. I have a dad. <laughs> Sometimes I judge myself unworthy of eternal life, unworthy of this kind of life. But I really do think that what Paul is saying is saying this is, this is the reality. It's either you, you, you take, you, you step into this kind of life on the basis of God's grace, mercy, and forgiveness, 
to the point where you're adopted in, you're filled with all the fullness, and you're participating with him, and you have a relationship with him. Not, not like, like we think of personal relationship is how we've contorted that, that meaning to mean just like, okay, like he's dealt with my sin, and then he's over here. Personal relationship is I have this ongoing thing where I'm listening to God, and I'm, and I'm being filled up. I'm, I'm actually experiencing my life as being adopted into his family. If somebody adopted you, paid your debt, and they just said, I never want to talk to you again, <laughs> that would be weird. That would be weird. But what, what the gospel says is that God who loves us, he's adopted us in, he's paid everything. He's taking care of all this stuff so that you can continue in this relationship with him. And in my heart, I don't always believe that. It, it, the remarkable part about, about Paul's ministry, right, is that he preached this good news to everyone. And that was sort of offensive to a lot of people. Right? It's offensive right here. He's going out preaching, preaching the gospel equally to Jews and Gentiles. See, because Paul was certain that the gospel was actually just, just talking about what's true in life and the way that God's order things. And it was true for everybody. It was true for everyone if it was true for one. Because God, has, has, he's going to preach the uh, salvation to the ends of the earth. Do you live on earth? Great. He's preaching salvation to you. He's preaching salvation to every part and to all people. He, he's preaching this, this adoptive being brought into the life of God in, 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 to all people. He's talking about this maximal, like, walking into love and relationship with God to all people. He's saying this is the truth of the matter. And it was going to be something that would change the whole world. And what we see here is that some people, hearing this good news, didn't count themselves worthy. They just said, no, I don't, I don't, I just don't. I think they don't want it. They don't think they can have this kind of relationship. And so they, so they walk away. In fact, they start to oppose this revelation of grace that Paul has here. And some people, the people who were furthest, the people who were least likely to respond to this gospel, they believe. These non-Jews received what Paul had to say. And then, and this is like fascinating right here at the end. Um, do I have this in the next slide? I think I put it up here again. Yeah. Okay, so they believe. It's, it's, it's um, made you like the Gentiles, bring salvation to the end of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they rejoiced and they were honored the word of the Lord. And that is, they believed it. They believed it to be true, an accurate representation of things as they are. And all who had been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord spread throughout the whole region. And then, you know, there's persecution. And we've talked about that a lot through the book of Acts. It seems like whenever there's a good thing, persecution comes. Standard uh, theme of the book of Acts. But then it says, the disciples were filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. Let me ask you a question. Who are the disciples in that, in that context? We sometimes think disciple is code for like the 12, you know, like those who are closest to Jesus. But that doesn't make any sense in this context, right? Because they're somewhere else. They're not really here. Those, those 12 disciples aren't really here. Who is it? It's, it's these people who believed and became disciples. They became followers of Jesus. Those people, the ones left behind when Paul went on, had received something 
right? In, in the course of what? A day? Paul gives them this good news. They receive it with joy that Paul has to get out of there because there's persecution being, being put against him. But these people who have heard this one life-changing truth, they have received it. They're filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Paul goes. They're not dependent upon him anymore because he, they have now realized what's true and what remains true, whether Paul's there or not. That they can participate by grace and continue in grace with this relationship with God. And it's a real thing. It's not an imagined thing. It's actually true. It's actually true that God has organized the world in such a way that his grace has enveloped people who are far away and who had no hope of knowing God. He fills them even with, to the point of filling them with himself. Puts his spirit within them. A lot of people would say, I don't want a part of God in me, like I'm not worthy of those things. But the point of the gospel is that God has counted us worthy. That's what, this is what he came to make sure that we know. Not, even the worth doesn't come from you, it comes from his love and his grace. And our call is just to keep saying yes, to continue in that grace. I'm going to leave you with Romans 8, 14 through 17. It says this, and the worship team can come on up as we, as we close out here. Um, for all those led by God's spirit are God's sons or daughters. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. This spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with God. Christ. The truth that Paul is proclaiming, it doesn't just end like in a, in, a, in, a, in a like, okay, debts are paid, move on with life sort of thing. It is a spirit that comes into us and it proclaims this adoption that we have been made heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. I do not count myself worthy of that. I certainly do not done nothing to deserve that but jesus died so that i could have that kind of standing and fullness of his presence and like i you know i grew up in the church um and i grew i i've grown up i mean i can't remember a time i guess i sort of can i have a pretty bad memory so i can't really remember a time when i didn't cognitively accept this to be true. But I've definitely spent many, many years, uh, and, and you know, even, even now, like, like sometimes like I go back to this place, spent many years n not experiencing it to be true. Anyone else? <laughs> Just me? Uh, no, I don't think so. Because this, look, this is the thing. I think, I think what the gospel has, is, is doing this, like it goes out powerfully, and the spirit moves powerfully throughout the Roman world in this first uh, couple centuries. And it, it's because these people, they, they got this. And not only did they, they get it, they received it, this adoptive 
Spirit. There's this, there's, <laughs> in my old church uh, in, in Connecticut, um, there's this great lady. She was from Hong Kong. And she would always like, <laughs> I'm trying to say this, like, I, I loved her and she had, has great spiritual instincts. But man, whenever she saw anybody, she's like, you have a spirit of an orphan. She would just call it out everywhere. Like, you got this orphan spirit. And guys, I mean, like, you kind of, like, wonder. You look at church in 2022. Is that the year it is? I can't do the trade anymore. You look at church in 2022 in America, and you're just like, what is up? Like, if God has promised these great things, if God has done these great things, like, like what is keeping us back? And honestly, I think what's keeping us back is that we have this sense of that we're just orphans. <laughs> Well, we've been adopted, and all the fullness of Christ is available to us. And I think a lot of it just comes down to the fact that we just don't, like, press in past this thing. We think, oh, no, I'm just going to satisfy myself with, with, the, with the head knowledge. Uh, but, it, but in the end, that always just leads me to this place where uh, I'm just kind of negotiating this relationship with Jesus and trying to, trying to answer my most urgent questions, but not really getting down to the heart of things. But what, what God does is he comes in behind this pronouncement of the gospel, this revelation of reality, and he always sends the spirit right behind it. And what the spirit does is it assures us of our adoption. And so, you know, what I just want to do is just to pray. Because if you're feeling like an orphan, I just want to pray. Because, I, and again, I know God's kind and gracious, right? And that we should just continue on this grace. I want to just, like, like lean into what God has said is true. And just, just ask on your behalf that you would just receive uh, the Spirit, if you never have received the Spirit, like this sense that God loves you, cares for you, like, like, like if you've believed this gospel of Jesus, that all this stuff is true, that he's forgiven your sins, taken away your day, but you never have this, this strong assurance. I just want to pray for that now. Or if you're like me, I mean, like, like well, the thing is, like, about the Holy Spirit is, like, we get filled with the Holy Spirit, but we leak, right? Everybody leaks. We're all just leaky. Um, we need to be filled again. And so that's all I want to do right now. I just want to pray together to just have the Lord fill us with the Spirit yet again, this joy of adoption yet again. Lord, I can't do that, but you can. Holy Spirit, would you just come? Lord, it seems that it's after Paul leaves, it's after he departs, that these people just wrestling with what you've revealed to be true. Lord, as they're wrestling and as they're struggling, Lord, you fill them with joy in the Holy Spirit. And God, for whatever reason, I think a lot of us get into this place of, of just separation, of, of being orphans. Uh, but Lord, like, who, who knows what the reasons now uh, are, Lord? Um, we, like, don't need to hang in with all of our faults, which are many, Lord. We need to continue on in your grace to continue to rely on you, Lord. You, you began a work in your spirit. You're going to continue it in your spirit. You're going to continue to empower us by your spirit and by your work, Lord. Would you do a spiritual work in us right now, Lord? Would you speak your love and your grace over people? Lord, people who are, who are feeling the weight of separation, the weight of uh, orphanedness, Lord, would you fill up with your grace all those who are hurting right now? 
Holy Spirit, come now and do what only you can do. into a time of worship here. I just want to like stay in this moment, just seeking the Lord and waiting on Him. So as we worship, just stay in that place. And I'm gonna I'm gonna go over here. If everybody wants to, to pray personally, I just I'll, I'll be over there during this song. So I'll come over, and I'd just love to to pray with you. 